We'll hear argument next in Case 08-1341, United States versus Marcus. Mr. Miller. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals erred in holding that reversal of respondent's conviction was appropriate on plain error review if there was any possibility, no matter how unlikely, that the jury's verdict was based entirely on conduct predating the enactment of the statute. Under Rule 52B, a defendant asserting a forfeited claim of error may prevail um, only by showing, at a minimum, a reasonable possibility that the error actually affected the outcome of the case. In particular, the fourth prong of the Alano plain error test requires a defendant to show a serious effect on the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. That test calls for a case-specific, fact-intensive inquiry, and a defendant cannot satisfy it if there is no reasonable possibility that the error affected the outcome. Uh, the decision of the Court of Appeals is inconsistent with this Court's cases applying prong four of the plain error test. Uh, Johnson, Cotton, and most recently Puckett from just last term. Uh, Puckett established that uh, the prong four inquiry is case-specific and fact-intensive and that a per se rule uh, at prong four is inappropriate. Uh, and that's exactly what the Court of Appeals adopted here, uh, applying a per se rule that if there's any possibility uh, of prejudice, uh, reversal is required. Uh, in addition, Johnson and Cotton make clear that when the error is one that affects an issue on which the evidence is overwhelming or essentially uncontroverted, uh, the, the defendant has not shown a serious effect on the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. And indeed, reversal in that context on the basis of a forfeited error that didn't affect the outcome uh, would undermine public confidence in the judicial system. Are there errors that are, that are so basic that they would call for an automatic new trial. But you, you say this, this is not such, a, such an error. Uh, th- this Court has reserved the question of whether, uh, for example, a structural error uh, would automatically satisfy the uh, effect substantial rights uh, component of, the prong, of prong three uh, of the Ilano test. What do you uh, mean by, by structural? Well, uh, the, the sort of error that, if properly preserved, would result in automatic reversal without an assessment of harmlessness. Yeah, but if you can be concrete, other than a reasonable doubt charge, what else would be structural? Well, I, I mean, in, in, in Johnson, for example, uh, the Court had not yet decided neither. Uh, and so in, in Johnson, it was unclear whether the omission of one element uh, the, the failure to instruct the jury on one element of the offense was a structural error. And in Johnson, the Court said, even assuming uh, that that's a structural error, and even assuming that, therefore, uh, the defendant has satisfied prong three uh, of showing uh, an effect on his substantial rights, nonetheless, uh, the Court of Appeals has to apply prong four and has to evaluate uh, on the basis of the record and the facts in that particular case whether there was an effect uh, on the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of judicial proceedings. Uh, and in that case, uh, the Court said that there wasn't uh, because the evidence uh, on the point that was the subject of, of the instructional error uh, was overwhelming and essentially uncontroverted. Uh, and that's, uh, in our view, the sort of analysis, the sort of case-specific uh, assessment of the facts that the Court of Appeals should have undertaken uh, in this case. Uh, the, the effect of the decision below is essentially to carve out uh, a special rule of plain error review that's applicable only to a particular kind of error. Okay, and, could and I ask they, you this? Uh, prong three of, Alon- of Alano looks to prejudice, right? Yeah. And then it's your position that prong four also looks to prejudice? Well, you have two prejudice inquiries. One is more searching than the other, perhaps. 
How do they fit together in that relation, well, the, the, in that regard? Uh, that's, that's right. I mean, we think that prong three in the case of a constitutional error requires uh, at least a reasonable possibility of prejudice. And prong four, uh, I think, it demands at least that much uh, and in some cases uh, may demand more. Uh, one example of a case where a, a defendant could satisfy prong three but, but not prong four uh, would be, for example, a, a Melendez-Diaz uh, kind of error if you had a, a drug possession case where the only evidence uh, that the substance the defendant possessed was cocaine, uh, was a laboratory certificate admitted uh, without confrontation. Uh, that, that would be a plain error under Melendez-Diaz, and that would uh, — the defendant would be able to show an effect on his substantial rights, uh, because if that was the only piece of evidence, uh, he, he would have been entitled to a, a directed verdict without it. Nonetheless — Under — under three. Uh, under prong three. But, but looking at prong four, uh, it w- the Court would say — you know, if, for example, the defendant had had an opportunity to subpoena uh, the chemist, if he hadn't controverted the accuracy uh, of the report, uh, there would be no basis for concluding on those facts that uh, there was a serious effect on the fairness or integrity or, or reputation of the proceedings. Well, you answered Justice Alito by saying there are cases in which your inquiry is more searching, more demanding under four. It might also be the other way around. I mean, if, if you if you've satisfied, if under three, um, you, you find that it hasn't affected uh, uh, the, the outcome. Um, then I don't know where you go under four. Uh, if, if under three uh, the defendant fails, then, then you don't need to apply prong four because uh, prong four uh, prong four is a, essentially an implementation of the discretion conferred by the word yeah. may in Rule 52B. In order uh, for the court to have any authority to correct a plain error, it must be one that affects substantial rights. Yeah, there, there is an overlap. There is some overlap in, in, in the inquiries, but uh, we, we think that, you know, as the Court made clear in Puckett, Rule 4 requires a, a fact-intensive, uh, case-specific inquiry. So under, under 3, the Court could conclude that uh, the defendant has shown that it isn't clear beyond a reasonable doubt for a constitutional error, that the error didn't affect the outcome. So the defendant would clear prong three, but in prong four, the defendant might still lose if it's fairly clear, but not beyond a reasonable doubt that, uh, is that, that, that how it would or, or, or if, uh, you know, as in the, the my Melendez-Diaz example, or if uh, uh, the, the, the nature of the evidence in the case uh, shows that, you know, apart from the effect on the defendant's rights of that particular error, that error in the context of the case uh, doesn't undermine public confidence uh, in the outcome. Um, what the Court of Appeals did here was to create a special rule applicable only to those errors uh, involving the failure to instruct the jury that they may not convict solely on pre-enactment evidence. Uh, the Court didn't give any reason why those errors should be treated differently uh, from other kinds of errors. Instead, it was simply applying a line of circuit precedent that uh, went back to cases predating Alano. Uh, and there is no reason for creating a special rule in that context. Uh, to the contrary, Johnson emphatically rejected the proposition uh, that uh, any, there are errors that are not subject to Rule 52B uh, analysis. And the, and the Court said that even uh, errors implicating fundamental constitutional rights, uh, like the Sixth Amendment trial, 
Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury in Johnson or the Fifth Amendment right to a grand jury in Cotton are also subject to the application. You, you don't want us to do it right. You want us to remand it so that they can do it right. Is it? The, the, this Court's usual practice when there's an issue that wasn't passed upon below is uh, uh, to leave it to be considered on remand. We think that's particularly appropriate because of the fact and record-intensive nature uh, of the argument in this case. So if the Court does reach that issue, uh, we would urge the Court to adopt the analysis of the concurring judges below, uh, who said that with respect to the forced labor conviction, uh, respondents' conduct in the pre-enactment and post-enactment periods uh, were essentially identical, such that there is no basis in the record on which a rational jury could have concluded that uh, he violated uh, the statute in the pre-enactment period. Uh, the, but the, not point, also the point may be tangential, but uh, if both counsel were aware of the date problem, um, was it 2001 was the enactment of the statute, um, and the jury was later properly instructed, uh, do you think that the uh, a government would, would find it important to introduce the evidence of the pre-enactment conduct, conduct just to set forth scheme, plan, design, purpose, to tell the jury the story? In, indeed, it would. Uh, in, in order to establish a violation of the forced labor statute, the government had to show that a respondent had obtained laborer services uh, by threats of serious harm or by a, a scheme, pattern, or plan intended to cause the victim to believe that she would suffer serious harm. Uh, and so, I mean, in this case, there was a, essentially a uniform course of conduct of the respondent obtaining laborer services, making threats of harm, and, and indeed brutally carrying out those threats. And so the the pre-enactment threats and pre-enactment acts carrying out the threats would certainly be relevant to show that the post-enactment threats were were indeed genuine threats and that uh, the victim could take them seriously uh, as threats uh, and that they did indeed uh, induce her to provide uh, the laborer services. What about the argument that was made was that in the um, the pre-enactment period, the website was created, and that's when the, that was a, the really hard labor as compared to just keeping it up to date. Well, there, I mean, the, the, the statute refers to labor or services, and creating a website is a kind of labor or service, and maintaining a website uh, is also a kind of labor or service. Uh, and there's, as the concurring judges in the Court of Appeals noted, uh, there's no basis uh, on which the jury could have concluded that, that one satisfies the statute, but the other does not. Uh, they're both, uh, they both fall comfortably within Mr. the order. Mr. Miller, can I ask you this question? We're, we're construing Rule 52B here, not and then as construed in, in Lano, which has developed the four factors. In, in your view, does the character of the violation, in this case an expo-spastical violation, does that ever make a difference? Can you could, could a court ever think that one kind of constitutional violation is a little bit more serious than another? Are they all fungible? I, I think in, in Johnson, uh, the, the court quite clearly said that uh, even very serious constitutional errors are subject uh, to the same uh, analysis under Rule 52B. And certainly, there's well, well, but, but the same constitutional analysis includes Step Four, which is whether. It undermines confidence in the result. And, and don't you think that some constitutional violations uh, 
more undermine confidence than others? Yeah, absolutely. I, and yeah, the, the test that would be applied would be the same, but the result of that test might be different. But For example, would it would also be possible that some constitutional violations undermine confidence a little more than others? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if, if the error were, for example, a, a biased judge, uh, I mean, uh, that would be one that would uh, almost invariably undermine confidence. In, but then in the why is the Second Circuit so wrong to say we think uh, ex post ex post facto violations are perhaps a little more serious than some others? Well, because the, the error, the, the, the essential error in this case was the failure to give the jury an instruction telling them that they could not convict on the basis of pre-enactment conduct. Uh, and, and that is essentially analogous uh, to the error that you had in Johnson, where there was a failure to give the jury an instruction telling them that they had to find uh, materiality. Uh, and but are the, all, all omissions and in jury instructions fungible, then? Here we have an omission in a jury instruction relating to the ex post facto clause. And does it, the fact that it relates to the ex post facto clause doesn't give it any extra weight or any lesser weight in the analysis? I I think in in the context of an error like this, uh, there there isn't any reason uh, to attach extra weight. I suppose if if the instruction... uh, told the jury in a criminal case that you can find the defendant guilty if you think it more likely than not that he committed the crime, that that might be different, don't you think? Yeah, that, that very well might uh, be different. That's right. Um, it isn't do you agree that this is ex post facto as opposed to a general due process violation? No, I mean, that, that's right. The, the ex post facto clause um, regulates the content of the laws that Congress can pass. Uh, and there would be an ex post facto issue in the case if Congress had tried to make uh, Section 1589 retroactive, uh, but it didn't, and everyone agrees that Section 1589 applies only prospectively. So the constitutional violation, if there is one, uh, comes from the possibility that uh, the defendant could have been convicted on the basis of Congress uh, of conduct that did not violate the statute. Well, you, you agree that there is a violation. Well, there's, a, there's a violation in the failure to instruct, um, and we think it's the due process clause that is the source of the requirement uh, that a defendant not be convicted on the basis of conduct that doesn't violate a statute. Um, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Farringer. Mr. Chief Justice, and if, if it pleased the Court, uh, <clears throat> we do believe there are errors uh, that are so basic that they require a reversal automatically. And certainly one of them is trying a person for conduct for two years that violated no law. It's almost unimaginable and it's unheard of. There are very few cases that even come close to reversal. Well, except that I think most trial judges would have admitted this evidence with the proper instruction to the jury, uh, that it's background evidence so that you can un- you can't tell the jury the story and just begin in 2001, or it doesn't make much sense to them. Now, I agree there was not a proper instruction here. There should have been an objection and so forth. But um, in an ordinary trial, this evidence would have come in with the proper limiting instruction. What's so important about that, if it please Your Honor, is that he couldn't have been convicted on that evidence. The Court would have instructed that this of, evidence of, was of, received. Of, of course. The, the jury would have to be instructed very carefully. But here, Your Honor, all this evidence came in, 
And he could be convicted and was convicted on the what we uh, lend, we think lends an awful lot of force to our argument here is that uh, the government has conceded that he could have been convicted exclusively on the pre-enactment conduct alone. That but that was convicted, but not there was a, a possibility, but not a reasonable possibility. That is, it's conceivable, but the government also is urging. The, the reasonable possibility that it is not likely, given the character of the evidence in the post-enactment period. Well, Your Honor, I understand that, but I certainly — I'd like to say first that in, in, in terms of the concession that was made here, you're talking about two years of conduct that came into a trial that is really quite extraordinary and terribly dynamic. Uh, the one last third of that, uh, Your Honor, I think uh, cannot, even though it came post-statute, it cannot be used to legitimatize uh, that first two years. And, and the jury heard all of it. And, and as a matter of fact, what we attach a great deal of importance to, the last question the jury asked of the uh, uh, judge, we want to know, what constitutes labor, and they put in their note these, the, the largest task of all, the building and the designing of the website and the maintaining it. And that was all pre-enactment. The threats were all pre-enactment. And this was a long, a long jury deliberation? It was out for seven days, Your Honor. Seven days the jury deliberated over this case. Justice Kennedy suggested that even though the conduct was pre-enactment, it would have come in to show pattern, scheme. So it's one one thing is to say the evidence, the jury wouldn't have seen that, that evidence, would, ha- would not have heard the evidence. And another to say the judge should have charged them. Now, you cannot use this evidence that you've heard for another purpose. You cannot use it to determine his guilt or innocence. But, but, Your Honor, I wanted to mention to the Court, of course, Rule 403, that says that if the prejudice of the evidence outweighs the probative value, I think if we could take ourselves back to that trial court and a, a lawyer stood up and said, Your Honor, we want to put in two years of background evidence, uh, I I think there's a good likelihood that it would have been excluded. I, I don't think Well, you can be pleased that I was not the trial judge. <laughs> Sorry to hear that, Your Honor. Uh, but uh, in, the, in the course of taking in some evidence uh, as background, I don't think it's ever been of this magnitude. And in a, u- a unique case where uh, the evidence that's coming in bears directly on the liability. And I think the, the question is terribly important because obviously it shows the jury was focused on the pre-enactment conduct, even with the forced labor. Does assume you can make all that argument on remand if we remand it, but what's your argument, apparently, from what I've read in this case, the Second Circuit uses a standard uh, of plain error that nobody else uses. Well, it says that no, all the other circuits say this is how a set of standards, and we've set them forth, and the Second Circuit says, nope, it, it's, you have to have a new trial. There's any possibility, no matter how unlikely. Well, now, now, nobody else uses that. It seems contrary to our 
uh, uh, cases, and is there any justification for their using it? Yes. Because unless I can hear a justification, I would guess I would vote to say, send it back and let them use the same standard anybody else does. Well, one point you make, Your Honor, that What's I your response certainly, that? certainly welcome, and that is that we're, we're seeking a retrial here. You know, you speak in, in just genuine fairness that, that the gentleman can be tried on that conduct that was post-enactment. But in response to Your Honor's question, uh, I think, Your Honor, the 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 — the difficulty is in, in this, this whole case is that it all ran together in front of the jury and, and they um, saw all of this proof with no instruction, with no demarcation, and, and the, the, the mere weight, the volume of the, of the two years out in front of that had to have a okay, so why don't you address you the it? test used by the Second Circuit. That's what we're oh, concerned I'm sorry. with. Uh, and that's what the question that. pertained I, I, to. I, I, They're I, I, using a test nobody else used that does not seem to comport with, with our prior opinions. Why shouldn't we send it back and tell them, you know, use the right test? Uh, Your Honor, um, I think, and, and I, I choose my words carefully, I think that this test under this circumstance was justified when the court saw the magnitude of the error here. They had to say if there was any possibility that the jury relied exclusively. The very magnitude of the error would argue for you'd win on any test. I mean, why does that say you have to use a special test that is specially designed to find when there's hardly any error? Here, there's such a big error, according to what you think, that you would have won under any test. So that, that, so what, why, why, why do you have to have this special, favorable test? That's, that's the question that I'm thinking of. I'm not thinking of whether you're right or whether you're wrong on the, how much evidence there was and how awful it was. I, I think to answer Your Honor's question, which is a, an incisive one, and that is uh, because, Your Honor, it's only the Court made it very clear we're only applying this test to ex post facto, and I think uh, in this instance, you're right, the magnitude of the error prompted them to say that if there was any possibility that this two years of, of conduct, the jury could have based their verdict exclusively on that, we think it had to be uh, uh, granted a new trial. Let me ask this question about the I, sh- I should know this, but I don't. To what extent has the regular test that the, uh, my colleagues referred to applied in ex post facto cases in other circuits? Uh, the Othan, the, the Olano test, Your Honor, or yes. the, the possibility test has been used in the Third Circuit in the Tykarski case. Uh, it has also been used in several states, Georgia. Were those ex post, 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 post facto cases? Yes, yeah. yes, Your Honor. And, so that and, it isn't necessarily a conflict between this case and all other plain error cases. It's a narrow category of cases involving ex post facto violations. In, the, in this very narrow category, Your Honor. Well, you call it an ex post facto violation, but I, I, I rather agree with the government. It's a due process violation. Well, I mean, know, what happened is improper evidence was admitted it, because it, it concerned pre-statute conduct. But uh, it, it, it might have been evidence that, uh, that was irrelevant for some other reason. Uh, that would be just as much a, a, a due process violation. What is special about the fact that the reason the evidence before the jury was incorrect was that uh, it, uh, it, it, the, the conduct occurred before the, uh, before the statute. 
Your Honor, as I know you are aware, the Marx case they held that uh, the ex post facto concept applied to judicial uh, precedent as well, and that was repeated in the Harris case in, in as well. Uh, but I think, Your Honor, certainly the whole uh, strength and, and, and weight of the ex post facto law is present here. The Second Circuit said this. Certainly involves ex post facto uh, implications. What you're doing is you're taking conduct that violates no law before the law is passed, and you're yeah, taking and, and when a state court allows pre-law conduct to uh, uphold a conviction, that is an ex post facto violation, and we would reverse the state court judgment. But that's not what occurred here. What occurred here is that the trial court let the jury consider evidence as evidence bearing upon conviction, which it should not have let the jury consider. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, that a court should not have let the jury consider. I don't see anything particularly special about the fact that the reason this evidence shouldn't have been before the jury was that it occurred before the statute. But well, if it not only allowed the evidence to before the jury, but it also told the jury it was sufficient to convict. Your Honor, that's right. It, it, what, sure. what is special about it is I think it's an extremely rare and irregular case that would allow two years of conduct come into a case. Uh, what, if the, uh, what if the period, the, char- the period that was charged, yes, started uh, one day uh, before uh, the statute took effect? Well, if it was, Your Honor, my would, would the test be different? Now, if, it, if you have one day of pre-enactment conduct, it's possible that the jury could convict based on that, the evidence relating to that one day, isn't it? And so, therefore, if the test is any possibility, the result is automatic new trial in that situation. Isn't, is that where your argument leads? My argument is, Your Honor, that what, uh, no person in this country under our Constitution should be tried for one day on conduct that did not violate a law. I, I, I it's true. And also no person should be convicted with a confession that was coerced. And no person should be convicted with evidence given under torture. And no person should be convicted with evidence unlawfully seized by the police. Now, for all those latter things, every court apparently uses the normal standard. So why would we, in this case, use a special standard? What's different, Your Honor, in all those cases, there was a law, at least giving the court jurisdiction, that was violated. There's a very serious question here of whether there was jurisdiction when they came in. Jurisdiction is derived solely through statutes that are violated in the criminal field. There were no statutes. So there's a serious question whether there was even jurisdiction. But, but what's different is, it seems to me, if you have a law, a mail fraud law, and then there's some sort of a violation and a, a, a suppression of evidence or, or whatever other arguments you're going to make, that's, that's light years away from a situation where there's absolutely no law uh, to, to violate and the conduct. And, and, and therefore no violation of the ex post facto clause. Beg your pardon? <laughs> <laughs> There's also no violation of the ex post facto clause, which is in Article One of the Constitution, uh, and which says no ex post facto law shall be passed. But your Honor, you don't have you don't have a an ex post facto law that was passed here. You have an incorrect jury charge. You have the judge telling the jury that you could convict on the basis of this prior conduct, when in fact you couldn't. That is not an ex post facto law. 
put, Your Honor, I, in all due respect, I invite your attention to your case in Marx and, and the Harris case where they have said that we've extended ex post facto to obviously uh, a whole host of cases now that involve uh, judicial precedent and, and the actions of prosecutors and whatnot. Uh, this I can't imagine in a way in terms of the concept of ex post facto to put in two years of conduct that is not in violation of any law that certainly fits within the presiding spirit of the ex post facto concept that people should, you know, if you want to go back to our very basics, and that's what's unique about this case, the entitlement to notice of what conduct is to be avoided, a statute that tells you what conduct you have to avoid, and all those. Looking for marks, where is that in you? Is that in your brief somewhere? Beg your pardon, Your Honor? You have mentioned several times the Marx case. What case? M-A-R-K-S. Where is that? Uh, that's in, in our — Is it in your brief? I, I, I believe it was cited in our brief, Your Honor. I will give you that in just a moment, if I may. Uh, the um, — but, but I'm under the impression, Your Honor, from our research, that there were a number of cases that — I mean, you see, I don't know what that case is. If, if it was a case in which — uh, we reversed a state Supreme Court because the state Supreme Court upheld a state statute that, uh, you know, that, that made prior conduct unlawful. Uh, then I, I, I think I could say uh, that was an ex post facto violation to the 14th Amendment. I think this comment is relevant to what you just said. Our forefathers, in, in imposing an ex post facto clause, it's one of the few that they imposed on the states as well as the federal government. And I think that lends it force in the sense that the states uh, have an ex post facto clause, as does the federal government. Uh, but we feel, under all the circumstances here, what yeah. all roads lead back to one very, very critical fact, and that is the enormity of the error here at being a, a constitutional error, and we certainly think a structural error, structural error in the sense that it ran from the beginning of the case. Uh, the grand jury should not have indicted on conduct that violated no law. He should not have been arraigned. Uh, he should not have been tried. He should not have been convicted. He should not have been consented. All that of the position that the, the two concurring judges said, yeah, that evidence should not have been, not that it shouldn't have come in, but the jury should have been told you can convict only on uh, post whatever the, the date was. But they also pointed out that one of the most severe incidents fell in the post-enactment period. It was in April of 2001. It was, and that was vivid evidence Properly, properly used by the jury to determine guilt or innocence. I, I understand that, and I think I know what you're referring to, Your Honor. I find much of the evidence in this case extremely distasteful, but uh, we're operating under a land of laws and constitution, and it seems to me his rights are as important. I know this Court appreciates that as any other person's, and the truth of the matter is that much of this very unattractive evidence came in before the law was ever enacted. And I think what happens is, and this is a reality psychologically, it all blends together, it all comes together, and without any kind of instruction, uh, my view would be under ex post facto principles, it would have ordinarily been excluded, it wouldn't have been brought in. Okay, look, th th this evidence was improper 
because if the legislature had made that action punishable when it occurred before the statute was enacted, that would have been a violation of the ex post facto clause. Now, in fact, the legislature didn't do that, and therefore we have no real violation of the ex post facto clause, but we do have the admission of evidence that shouldn't have been admitted, which is no different from evidence that should have not been admitted for some other reason. For example, where the, where the, uh, the court gives an instruction that permits evidence to be considered as evidence of the crime, which in fact is irrelevant to the crime. And the jury says you can find him guilty if you find that he held two fingers up in the air, when in fact that has nothing to do with the crime. Why is this any different from that? It's just evidence that the jury should not have been allowed to use for conviction. I don't see why there's anything special about the fact that the reason it shouldn't be used for conviction is because it occurred pre-statute. In all due respect, Your Honor, uh, I believe the cases uh, and Supreme Court cases have held that the ex post facto law has been extended to judicial precedent. And we cite those cases, Your Honor, in our brief. Well, I I thought what we have said that it's just a violation of due process (coughs) to convict someone for conduct that was not criminal when the conduct was was made. It's just, it's just a due process. It's a due process violation. I say it's, just. It's a serious due process violation. I think uh, uh, you're right, Your Honor, in the sense that it's the ex post facto law being applied to the due process clause. But the impact and the force of that, I think, is still just as great and just as powerful. And 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 the error here, uh, factually, is is absolutely enormous. And and what I think the very least a defendant in this position is entitled to is. He's suffering under a nine-year sentence. I think he's entitled to have another trial where he is only confronted with the evidence that came after the statute. And if they're going to put in evidence that goes before that, they would have to justify that under one of a number of different concepts, Rule 404B or one of the others. And we would argue in that context, none of this was ever done, of course, under 403, uh, if it was too extensive, the prejudice outweighs the probative value. And I think that many judges would be sympathetic to that for putting in a whole two years of conduct. Some might come in, and then they would get in. Courtesy of Justice Kennedy, I have, I have before me the Marx case. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the uh, summary of the case at the beginning says, Petitioners were convicted of transporting obscene materials in violation of a federal statute held the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment precludes retroactive application to petitioners of the Miller Standards. It was a due process case. And the only thing that I would think immediately of that is, is the statute here. Yeah, he was, there's no question, the, the, the conduct was forbidden by statutes in, in time, but was applied in advance of those statutes before And those therefore, statutes. the due process clause was violated when the court let that in. I don't have a quarrel so with you So you, you, you have to persuade us that there's something special about a violation of the due process clause that lets in evidence which is pre-statute, as opposed to violations that let in other evidence that should not properly be used to convict the defendant. I, I frankly don't, don't see why it's so special. I'm, uh, it, Your Honor, uh, I'm 
endeavoring to persuade you, but somewhat unsuccessfully, uh, this is not an evidentiary error. It is, in every sense, a, a due, uh, an ex post facto error, but it is through the due process clause. I think that there we, we meet on common ground. It's through the due press process clause that the uh, ex post facto clause is made, made uh, effective in trials. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, the indictment here, which you start with, charged uh, these crimes going all the way back uh, to January of 1999, uh, when the act didn't, come of, didn't become effective until to October of 2000. What if the conduct, the, the, we didn't have pre-enact, what if we did not have pre-enactment conduct? What if we, if this statute applies only within the United States, as I assume that it does, and, and all of the, the pre- conduct that's now pre-enactment was conduct that took place outside the United States? Would that, would the case be different for these purposes? If, if all the conduct that was proven instead of having pre-enactment conduct, you have conduct in Canada, Mexico, someplace else. Uh, I I think it would. And the jury was instructed they convict, could, could be convicted on the basis of what happened in Canada. Yes, that that's right. And 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 I uh, the, all I'm suggesting is wherever the evidence comes from. Uh, it shouldn't be admitted except under one of the very narrow exceptions, such as Rule 404B, and we would argue under 403 it should be excluded wherever the evidence came from. Uh, and, and a judge would, ex- uh, as I understand it, a judge would instruct a jury, you cannot convict <laughs> Mr. Marcus on any of this evidence whatsoever that is pre-enacted. No, of course, but the question is whether the mere possibility standard would apply in that case as well, or whether you think this mere possibility standard applies only in the case of pre-enactment conduct? I think the, the possibility standard only applies to ex post facto statute cases and pre-enactment conduct. That's my view, Your Honor. I think it's a very narrow holding. And I'm not urging that this would be the standard for other uh, other than ex post facto cases, and I'm not urging this would be the standard in ex post facto cases where what this does, Your Honors, if you stop and think about it, it isn't a sense of right-line rule. What has gone on in the past is we have to measure. We have to take on the one hand the, the post-enactment conduct, and we take on the other hand the pre-enactment conduct, and we go through this, what I I'm of a generation, I remember Betsy Brady before Gideon came down, and it was always a constant deciding in, in that context whether a person got able representation until you decided uh, the Gideon case, Gideon versus Wainwright. Aren't we in the same position here? Wouldn't it be better to have a rule that says where clearly you shouldn't be bringing in uh, pre-enactment conduct anyway if you bring in pre-enactment that conduct, and there is any possibility that the jury convicted on that, there'll be a new trial. It seems that's going to avoid all of that balancing and weighing and, uh, and perennial, perennial appellate review. That's what uh, I, I think is, is, is commendable about the Second Circuit's decision. I think that's where there's a great deal of sense behind it. So your position is essentially plain error doesn't apply in this area. It's just error because it, it involved evidence pre-enactment, that error is enough, doesn't have to I'm meet. Sorry, it it doesn't have to meet the standard for plain error. Yes, absolutely. And this doesn't affect that whatsoever. I mean, I, I think there's a misconception on um, some people. 
We, the Second Circuit took the four Olano factors and applied them one, two, three, four. Uh, they didn't touch them. They didn't uh, in any way alter them. What they did is on the concept and the rule governing ex post facto uh, adjudications, that was purely substantive. But the any possibility doesn't apply to plain error. Those four uh, prongs have been left intact. And so they haven't disturbed that in any way. They set those four prongs out in the preamble of their opinion. Obviously, what they found was when you have a case of this magnitude of pre-enactment conduct of two years, they felt that that certainly affected the fairness and the integrity of the trial and the judicial reputation. I say to myself, if it appeared on the front page of the New York Times, man convicted for two years of conduct where there was no law, that I would guess would have an adverse effect on the reputation of our judicial process. Whereas a ruling where a court held this man should go back and get a new trial on the conduct that violated the statute and not on conduct that violated the law would enhance the reputation of the court. So applying that factor, we feel strongly and, and, and powerfully that uh, the correct disposition here is to affirm the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and we will go back and we will have a retrial on the conduct that violated the statute. If you have no other questions, I, I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Mr. Ferenger. Uh, Mr. Miller, you have 16 minutes. Just uh, very brief. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, very briefly, I'd like, like to make two points. Uh, first is that uh, essentially the error in this case was the failure to give uh, a limiting instruction relating to the use of the pre-enactment evidence, uh, and that's the same sort of instructional or evidentiary error uh, that be, can be considered uh, in a case-specific analysis under prong four and should have been considered uh, through that analysis. Um, the, the second is that uh, respondents suggest that there was a lack of jurisdiction uh, in this case, uh, that argument rests on an understanding of jurisdiction that this Court rejected in Cotton, and we discussed that at pages 9 to 11 of our reply brief. Uh, if the Court has no further questions, uh, we ask that the judgment be reversed and the case remanded. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.